Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. Well, this week, of course, it's all about looking back on the European Parliament elections and what's going to happen with the race for EU top jobs. There was an EU Leaders Summit Tuesday to begin that discussion. Well, the big headline news is that turnout was massively up in the election, still only at a little bit over 50%, but that's very respectable given 40 years of a downward trend in the number of people participating in the election. So a lot of people are running around saying now that democracy is the winner in this election, even if no individual party can claim a huge wave across Europe. The turnout means that there is some kind of fundamental resilience and engagement in European politics. Now, what are some of the other trends that we're going to dive into in this episode? Well, of course, the centre parties, the centre-right and the centre-left, they lost a combined 80 seats. What we did see as well was a wave in both the Liberals and the Greens. The Liberals up 40 seats, the Greens up 15 seats, each of them with some very strong performances in individual countries. Now, the Eurosceptics also achieved their highest ever vote share. They're on track for around 235 seats out of 750. The problem for them? They're split between three different groups in the parliament. Matteo Salvini, for example, did extremely well in Italy. But what about Marine Le Pen? Yes, she just nudged Emmanuel Macron in France, but she lost vote share. She lost seats. So that's not really momentum for the Eurosceptics. And overall, they performed about 20 seats lower than what the polls had predicted. So where does that leave us in the race for EU top jobs? Well, Firstly, we're probably going to be talking a little bit about policy before we get to nominating anybody to those positions. It's a case of the personalities at some level following the policies. Manfred Weber, he's not exactly in a great position. His European People's Party finished first in the election, but with only 24% of the vote. So it's not a huge mandate to claim the top job or multiple presidencies, which is what the EPP has now. By the same token, they clearly did beat the socialists. So what claim do the socialists have? And while a lot of people are talking up the chances of Margrethe Vestager from the Liberals, the Liberals only placed third, and Vestager herself seemed very reluctant in the campaign to say that she actually wanted to be commission president. So we could be looking at a dark horse candidate, and it looks like it's going to take quite a few weeks before we get to a final outcome there. But what we do know is that it's going to take at least three and probably four parties to come to an arrangement to ensure some kind of stable pro-EU governing coalition for these institutions in the coming years. In this week's episode, we've got Martin Selmayr, the very powerful and sometimes controversial Secretary General of the European Commission, to give us his views of what's going to happen next. 
let's hear from Martin Selmayr. So Martin, I'm sure you have a lot of views about what went on last night. Institutions and processes, a big tick. Parties, there's something for each party to love and hate in the results. Could you give us a bit of a download? Where is Martin Selmayr thinking the EU is going to head over the next few months, knowing what you know now? First of all, Ryan, let me say I'm very happy to be here, and not only sitting next to you, because it's the first time ever that we meet. So, so that is true. I find that very good. <laughs> <laughs> Three that's years of playbook without meeting Martin that's Selmayr. That's, that's quite an achievement. <laughs> um, because I've heard about you. <laughs> Secondly, um, I was very intrigued by the way how you presented that because I can tell you this was almost identical to how I presented it to our team in the Commission this morning. So we have a very similar reading. Don't know I would if that's say good or bad, but thank you. Exactly. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's good or bad for me. <laughs> no, but I think it's good that we have uh, at this moment in time, with a cool head, uh, uh, an objective reading of the situation, not a partisan reading. And I think you're a journalist, I work for the Commission, so we have a duty to be not partisan, but to look at this from an objective point of view. I think the first point, and I would like to agree with you very much, is the increase in turnout. I was hoping for that, but one never knows if your own subjective impression of an election campaign uh, is correct, uh, because one cannot be everywhere in Europe. But I had the impression over the last weeks that Europe was a subject that was discussed much more than in previous time, that people were more engaged, asked more questions. They didn't say everything is perfect in the European Union, but voting in European Parliament elections matters. Huh? And I'm very glad to see that this result is in the final numbers. And I'm particularly glad that in some countries the uh, turnout has gone up very, very significantly. In Poland, by 20%. In many, many Central and Eastern European countries where it was extremely low, it has gone up by 10, 18, 15, 20%, because that was a bit uh, our sorrow after the last European Parliament election, that our newer member states are not so fully participating. So I think also a good testimony to all those who campaigned, because many, many people were campaigning, the Spitzenkandidat, their parties, many, many volunteers and citizens drawing attention. I see also in this higher turnout the effect of a certain wake-up call. Over the last years, we had Donald Trump and Brexit. I think probably two events that have shown very much how much is at stake, or Putin in the East, uh, that if we don't vote, if we don't engage uh, for this European project, we can lose a lot. Uh. And I would also say, in addition to that, the increased personalization and politicization of the European Union affairs has contributed to that. Uh, people have understood, at least in many countries, that voting for this or for that party has an effect on the final political program of Commission, Parliament and Council. And therefore, I think the real winner of this election is democracy. The second takeaway that I have is on uh, the so-called populist wave. I think it was contained. I think you hinted at that. We have uh, some worrying results, notably here in Belgium, Sweden and some other countries, but we have also encouraging results, like in the Netherlands, and I think here this is testimony to a very, very strong campaign of the socialist Spitzenkandidat. We have a containment in Spain, uh, clear, and I would agree with you on what you said about, about France. I think it's 23 seats for En Marche and for Le Pen, and uh, if you compare it to five years ago, this is a significant reduction of the shares of Le Pen, and uh, also the distance between Le Pen and uh, En Marche is almost not visible, while it was uh, 5% five years ago. So I would say that is something, it's not a reason to despair, but also not a reason to sleep uh, very well tonight. Eh? We have to continue to be vigilant. Mm. The third takeaway is on the coalitions. Um, you said it before, the election is the first stage. Uh, 
And after election, if nobody has uh, 50% plus one, then you have to build coalition. It was like that last time, five years ago. I would like to recall that sometimes I have the impression it is a bit distorted the image of what happened five years ago. Five years ago, President Juncker and the Juncker Commission didn't have the EPP and socialists behind them and thereby could win the majority in the European Parliament. Huh? President Juncker went to all democratically elected political groups and he, at the end he knew that because he knew that uh, some in the EPP voted against him, some in the socialists voted against so it was not sufficient to rely on EPP and socialists and therefore he also made an agreement with the liberals and with, I would say, about 50% of the Greens who at the end voted for the first ever successful Spitzenkandidat. I remember a blog by Rebecca Harms at the time, I remember Mr. Butikofer who asked for that and that of course was the result of a lot of talks that took place before. So I think if I see now the results, it will require for any commission to get into office to have the EPP, the Liberals and the Social Democrats working together and taking into account the Greens as well, because I think at least, even though it's not in all countries, in some countries it's a massive green wave that shows also that Europe is changing. And therefore I think the next president of the Commission will have to do the same thing, what Jean-Claude Juncker did. He has to talk to many people and try to broaden that. And the best person who can do that is always a Spitzenkandidat, because why should democratically elected parties who are convinced that democracy is the right thing, why should they go for someone else after, if I have said this before the elections? And, and I think several said that. The EPP said it. The Social Democrats said that. The Liberals had a Spitzen team, but uh, also they campaigned in this way. And the Greens had, had lead candidates. So I think all these democratically pro-European forces will, at the end, have to work together. And now I think the main next stepping stone is the European Council dinner tomorrow night. If we want to make the European Union function, if we want to avoid that the European Union is paralyzed, which would only benefit to the populist and to the enemies of the European project and to the enemies of Europe as such, then I think to tomorrow evening it should, nothing should be excluded. Mm -hmm. And we should, like always after elections, make sure that the democratic forces sit together, work on a program. The program must come first now. And then when you have the program, then you will find, find also the right co coalition of personalities to implement that. So thinking about how this will play out in the next steps, and you've been through this process before, do you recommend Manfred Weber and or Franz Timmermans hold back for a couple of days, or should they be racing around talking to these leaders now? If it is policy first, and if it is going to be a slow, painstaking process, do they need to push themselves forward, or do they need to leave leaders some space to react to last night's events? I think both is true. Huh? You will, at this moment in time, have to talk to many people in your own political families and across Europe. The idea that here are the political families and there are the leaders is not correct. Huh? This is why some people have never understood the Spitzenkandidaten process truly. The leaders are members of the political family. They nominated their lead candidates. Huh? There is no difference on that, even though they sometimes have different advisors with them in the European Council than they have at party political meetings. Huh? But at the end of the day, the Spitzenkandidaten has not been invented by people who have nothing to do with the leaders. Huh? The leaders are in the room when somebody is put on the shield. This was the case with Jean-Claude Juncker, and that will be the case this time. This time is a bit more complicated than last time, I think that's clear. But we are perhaps back to the normalcy that we have in all our member states, that we need three, four party coalitions, and therefore a bit longer coalition talks. My bet today is I put my money on the fact that the next commission will be earlier formed than the Belgium government. Well... <laughs>
So, so just to clarify, you're not extending the contracts of all the temporary staff yet. You are still working towards November 1 for that changeover? Nobody can do that because we have a treaty and the treaty says that the mandate of this commission ends on the 31st of October 2019. And I think we are all well advised to work towards this objective because it is not good news if we don't get our act together in Europe and agree on the leadership of the executive. I think that's the first order now. The European Union has many challenges ahead of us huh? on trade, on our values, on what happens in the east and the south and the west of Europe. Somebody will have to take over also Brexit again after the 31st of October in one way or the other. So we have no time to lose. Huh? We have a bit of time now in the months of June and perhaps a bit of July to do these coalition talks in the broadest possible way and I hope in a constructive pro-European spirit that says we need change. Yes, we need change. Every five years you need change. Therefore, elections are such a unique moment to renew personnel, to renew leadership and to give a new program for five years to the European project. This is a unique opportunity and therefore we need now many, many constructive forces to work on that one, to put the program together and to find the right people to implement it. Mm -hmm. And I'm very confident that uh, everybody will be up to the responsibility. We have no choice. Mm -hmm. Now, to circle back to the Spitzen candidate question again, we have a complication in numbers, but there's a complication in politics now as well, because you have the Liberals really quite aggressively saying they don't support the system as designed. You saw it in their construction of Team Europe, which was, let's say, a very generous interpretation of how to participate in the Spitzen candidate process. So I guess my question there is, do you think Manfred Weber, with 182 seats, 24% of the vote, is it that he needs to be allowed to push forward first in trying to form a majority? Or is it going to inevitably be a case of parallel competing candidates, each trying to demonstrate a majority? I think there are parallel competing candidates. And also, I think all pro-European democratic forces have candidates. Some call them Spitzenkandidat, the other call them differently. But everybody says, I want to be president of the commission. Huh? And I think that's a good thing. Competition is a good Margaret thing. Margaret Vestager never actually said that. I, I, heard, her, I heard her yesterday evening saying that. Oh, so now she's decided that to You heard that too? Okay, she said okay. it. I heard it. Huh? We, I heard we it. did a head-to-head -head team and interview and she wouldn't good. say it. I think you, you have to say, I go into elections, I want to be the leader of the executive, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And that means there is competition, which is, by the way, a good thing. I'm sure the competition commissioner would agree with me that competition is a good thing. And uh, I think now these three or four, they will have to sit together, discuss. In a democracy, normally after parliament elections, what is the normal thing? That the one who comes first, even though he or she will, doesn't have the absolute majority, does the first round of sounding out. Uh, and we have at European Union level a particular invention because we don't have an affirmateur, we don't have a king, we have Donald Tusk uh, who has from, by the treaties the mandate to be the ones who is the counterpart of the European Parliament political groups for the consultations that are foreseen in the treaties. Uh. Mm -hmm. The treaty says it very clearly, the European Council must propose the President of the European Commission taking into account the outcome of the European Parliament elections and after the appropriate consultations. That, I think, what we need to give some time now in the months of June. And I'm sure that both Manfred Weber, Franz Timmermans and Margaret de Vistager will sit on the other side of the table in one way or the other. If it's bilateral, if it's group meetings, I think that's for President Tusk to decide. And then at the end of the day, I'm sure that the European Council wants to propose something to the European Parliament that the European Parliament will afterwards elect. So the treaty foresees both possibilities. Mm -hmm. You propose somebody, he or she is elected, or you propose somebody and he or she is rejected by the European Parliament, and then within one month you have to come up with another person. I'm sure that nobody's interested in this time to have an institutional crisis. Therefore, 
I think we will try to find during these uh, sondages that will be done now by President Tusk and the leaders of the political groups in the parliament to try to find a broad majority that we quickly are able to act. As I said before, we have big challenges and I would notably not want that somebody like Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin sense that Europe is weak at the moment. Huh? We are strong because we have a strong and vibrant democracy and we need now to get to our act together on the basis of these results to form a broad democratic pro-European majority. So realistically then, tomorrow night is a starting discussion and we're talking about the June summit as a landing zone, yes. but we should try and wrap it up then in order to demonstrate that strength and unity. I would say it would be good if we were to wrap it up before the summer. <laughs> it's been a very long time coming in Belgium this year. And, and, uh, and the summer, <laughs> He's the summer, giving himself some wriggle room there. The summer in line with the summertime directive proposal of Violetta. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Now, thinking a little bit on the policy side of things, and we can get into it more with the party representatives later as well, I'm thinking what sort of policy claim would you consider a group like the Greens being able to make now as trying to in developing that package of top jobs because they've clearly been very strong notably in your home country Germany but they're not strong everywhere and given that there aren't top jobs for everybody one of the things that can be given in some kind of arrangement or deal that is struck in the next few weeks is commitments on policy and you're a policy maker you're a policy manager what do you think is the room for maneuver there over some of the key demands I think before we go into top jobs, I think people will discuss programme. I expect the Greens, who are a party very strongly focused on content, they will dedicate all their resources on that. And I think probably, and I heard this yesterday also from Scar Scala in her interviews, make sure that there's as much of their programme in this. I think they will find a lot of open ears, because if you look what the European Union has been doing for the last five years, we are the only ones in the world uh, unequivocally supporting the Paris Agreement and implementing it also on our continent. And I think if you look what the Commission has proposed for the year 2050, we will certainly be able to agree on something very ambitious. We have to take other interests into account. But I would expect that the green wave that we had in many countries, not in all, will have a strong impact on the program of the next Commission President. Mm -hmm. Knowing the Greens, they are idealistic, therefore they will also see the reality in the European Council. So probably their priority, but Manfred Bu uh, uh, Reinhard Bütikova will say that better than I, uh, their, their focus will be on content and not yet on the President of the European Council. But that is just my guess. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe a final couple of questions on this broadening out of the top job process. So we just dealt with the policy side of things. The other unusual factor, probably, I think it only occurs once every 22 years, is that the European Central Bank president will need to be selected by the end of the year. So are we looking at needing to have a very broad package that includes, even if it doesn't politicise, for example, an ECB president? Is that something we need to wrap into one big package in these coming weeks? I think it would be naive to think that this will not all play a role, but I think we need nevertheless to make a clear distinction. On the one side, and that is foreseen in our treaties, declaration number six, if somebody wants to read it, the package that is foreseen has to be between president of the European Commission, president of the European Council, and the high representative vice president of the commission. Here you have to make sure, as declaration number six says, that we need demographic and geographic balance, uh, and also take into account the outcome of the European Parliament election. So this is the triangle that, first of all, will have to be sorted out. So I think everybody interested in a strong and credible European Central Bank will try to avoid to bring the European Central Bank directly into this difficult puzzle. 
Uh, there is one other difference with the presidency of the European Central Bank. The president of the European Central Bank cannot be prolonged beyond the 31st of October 2019. So this is something that has to be sorted out by then, because otherwise we would not have a president of the European Central Bank, and probably that would not be a good signal to financial markets. So on that one, I think people have to be very, very sober mm -hmm. and try their best to find somebody, as the treaty says, on the basis of reputation, excellence and qualification, which is in the ECB even more important than in all the other jobs. Mm -hmm. You tip me off to one final question. I'm very sorry. I'm a terrible journalist, but I keep asking for more. On that question of demographic balance, yep. we heard each of the Spitzen candidate commit during the process to say they want a gender equal yes. college. It's not entirely in their hands, but I wonder as someone who has to be part of that sort of to and fro over who gets nominated and how that rolls out, what do you think you can do and what do you think will actually happen in terms of attracting more female names from the national governments for the commission? Well, Ryan, I'm not a player in this. Uh, I'm just observing, like you do, from the outside. Uh, but I fully agree with the fact that we need a gender balance in all EU institutions. By the way, we should have it everywhere, uh, in journalism, in work life, everywhere. I think it's necessary in our society. It is a bit easier said than done. I remember when President Juncker looked at the first tableau of what the 28 member states had proposed to him at the time. Out of 28, there was only one woman proposed. Huh? Mm -hmm. So he had to use his prerogatives as commission president-elect to insist huh, uh, that we got at least nine in the commission. And, uh, so he, he basically uh, sent eight back to the drawing board then. I don't say how many he sent back, uh, because uh, that he will probably want to reveal in his memoirs, uh, but uh, there were a couple of them. And it's true, the president of the commission has to say yes, uh, he is the guarantor of that, but he cannot decide it alone. And I remember very well when he said to this or that prime minister, uh, you can't tell me that you don't have a good woman in your country. According to my statistics, 50% of the population of your country are women, so you should find somebody there. Huh? Uh, so I hope that this time we will have a similarly strong commission president who will insist on that, that also leaders themselves will insist on that one. And I think we in the commission have to continue our work. We brought under President Juncker the share of women in senior management from 25 to above 40%. Uh, and uh, I think you can do things if you just insist. Uh, it's something that is not nice to have, it is must to have in our modern society. Excellent. Well, Martin, I think it's time we join uh, some other, bring some other panellists up on stage. The real so politicians, please. <laughs> let's give a round of applause to Martin Selmayer. Well, I think we will have to have a lot of patience, democratic patience in the coming weeks, uh, because it is not that the first attempt or the first attempt to bring this coalition together means that we are at the end of the road. I think there will be probably several attempts, several talks, several meetings. Uh, and I think what is very important that this positive impression that uh, was generated now with the high turnout, that we don't talk ourselves then down by saying now there's a big crisis because we have a first disagreement. Uh, it's totally normal when you have to bring three different political parties together to form an executive and the leadership uh, of political institutions. Uh, you will need some time. And that is, uh, that is part... Uh, that is <laughs> part w w did you mean to say three, or was that a slip of the tongue? I think I said, I think I said three. I said three, because there are three institutions to... That ah, but you meant institutions needed. rather yeah, than... Yeah, yeah, I meant three okay. institutions. Fine. <laughs> I meant three institutions. <laughs> <laughs> we need also to argue over the coming weeks a little bit about the best solutions. We will only make Europe stronger and give it a better profile if we don't only think about who gets the jobs, but if we think what is the output for the next five years. Huh? And I think that is a task that I think everybody who at the moment says, let's first of all build the coalition, then let's see if I get a job into that one. I think I like that much more because I think that's what is the real message of citizens. Huh? They say Europe matters. We don't like everything, how it works. Let's improve Europe. And I think that we can only do with a strong 
uh, program for the next five years that has to be ambitious. It has to be ambitious, and yes, it has to be an agenda of change, as it always has to be after five years. If there's no agenda of change after five years, then we have misunderstood the voters. You were listening to Martin Selmayr, the top civil servant at the European Commission. Next up, the podcast panel. And here's the podcast panel. Alva Finn, how are you? Hi. Lena Rabarus. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva. Welcome back, Alva, from Geneva. Mm. Welcome back to the new European Union. Yeah, we had lots of waves, lots of headlines about waves, but no pan-European wave, let's say. So for anyone who's been living in a dark hole or skipped the first half of the podcast, the centre parties have maintained their sort of two-thirds position in the European Parliament. The Eurosceptics have about a third. But those centre parties are much more evenly split between four political groupings now. The Liberals and the Greens made gains, but they made most of their gains in a couple of countries each. And the Eurosceptics, particularly Matteo Salvini's alliance, made gains as well, but mostly in Italy. So that is an important message to understand if you haven't already absorbed it. Marine Le Pen lost vote share and lost seats in this election. But on that uh, endless droning on note from me... What are you two thinking? I think that definitely when I'm looking at how I'm going to work in the future as someone who does advocacy in Brussels, it's not as bad a picture as we had imagined in the past. And in some ways, you know, loosening the grip of the EPP through some of the proposed coalitions could be a good thing for progressive politics. That's my overall take. Obviously, the Spitzen candidat process, the top job, horse trading that's going to happen now has a big impact on that. So we'll see what happens. But in general, I think, and it's clear as well that Juncker and other EPP people have recognised that they shouldn't have taken all the top jobs the last time and that they're going to have to pay a heavy price. So what's the price? And then you also have some posturing from the S&D and the Greens, etc., about, you know, not really being keen on having another um, EPP commission president. Well, uh, a thing I've said repeatedly over the last six months is if you're getting less than 25% of the vote, you can't have 75% of the jobs. You know, mm. you don't have to be a genius to realise that's not a fair sort of distribution of the system. Lena, how are you feeling after predicting 32% turnout? <laughs> and actually it was 50.8%. <laughs> yeah, I lost. It's okay, Ryan. I brought the champagne and uh, actually cava. Um, so, uh, <laughs> she had to fine. get that I one in to, I, I have to confess so yeah it's a great I think it's a wonderful moment because everyone was very skeptical including myself that there will be um, a high percentage of people will go out and vote and I think we have to recognize all the efforts that everyone was trying to work and push the European citizens to go and vote so this is something great a good message from Europe to the world and what about this idea that democracy is the winner you know the parties might have all lost in one way or another but you know the process was the victory the process is the victory I don't think so maybe let's say 60% but let's see how they are going to choose the president of the commission once Europe succeed to elect its own president I think this is the pure victory for democracy yeah would you agree with that that there's going to be a lot of 
heartburn in Brussels now about is it right and fair to choose someone behind closed doors? Should Manfred Weber still get a shot at this, even with only 24% of the vote? And actually, I think that's the part of the process that most Europeans don't have a clear view on. Yeah, and I I really don't like the idea or the way that the EPP have always sold it is whoever gets the majority of the votes. But yeah, I mean... The majority is 50 plus one. Yeah, they don't don't have that anymore. So the idea that just the party that gets the most votes is it's a bit silly, especially when you're talking about the divides that you've just spoken about. You know, we have completely different pictures across the European Union on what the political spectrum looks like in Spain is completely different to what it looks like in Germany, where the socialists have bottomed out. So you still have those deep, even deep divides in the council. I think it's going to be a very interesting time. As I've said before, I think given that the major political parties want the Spitzenkandidat process to happen, if it doesn't, and the council elects people behind closed doors, we're going to have some sort of crisis on our hands. And there was a lot of posturing in the campaigns of all the Spitzenkandidat about the role of the council in blocking some major things. And I think that if we... But can another Spitzen candidate win? I mean, the smart money has been piling onto Margrethe Vestager in the past 48 hours in the betting markets. She gets spoken about a lot. I got a definite sense from Martin Selmayr when I interviewed him on Monday that he would be totally okay with Vestager. So what if all the Spitzen candidate got a job somewhere, but just not necessarily Weber at the commission? Is that a plausible message that can be sold to the parties and to Europe? Alma's face is like, no. <laughs> but again, it's it's about the member states. Are they going to approve somebody as strong as Vestega? Historically, Europe always had, a not a weak, but let's say a very fluid diplomat on top of this big institution in order not to pressure the member states, in order not to pick up the phone and say, no, this is what we are going to do. And I think her character and what she has achieved the past commission, she's not a yes person. Although now she is the, let's say, most suitable, but I don't think they will make her the president of the commission. It's funny now all of this wording around what the European Parliament is saying, you know, did it have to officially be someone who ran as a Spitzen candidate for one of the parties? And can I also point out, there are no MEPs at the moment. Because the Parliament isn't in session, it hasn't been convened. So Antonio Tajani is a kind of, hangover president, let's Mm. say, the people who used to have jobs have gotten together and had an informal meeting and a majority of them have said, we support this system. But like, who are this bunch of people to put out a press release on Tuesday, in my opinion? Pressuring Mm. uh, all the parties to come together for that. Yeah, it's a a bit weird. But you know, some people live on their past always. But Mm. aren't they already making concessions then on the basis that they're saying, we just want someone who was presenting themselves as a Spitzen candidate. Oh, well, I got a very interesting email from a Liberal campaign official today saying, oh, I think you were a little bit confused. Um, actually, Margrethe Vestager has said already back in March that she wants to be commission president, and so that's official, and she definitely came up fully publicly about that at the beginning of May. And it's interesting because I remember interviewing her on the 20th of April, and she said something entirely the opposite, that she wouldn't commit to running for commission president. Actually, her first choice was to be competition commissioner. Let's hear what Margrethe Vestager had to say in that interview with me in April. 
someone has to take the job. So Indeed. you are a candidate for the position of Commission President. Well, actually, I said to my home country, who don't really want to hear about it, that I would very much like to continue as a commissioner. Mm -hmm. Because in my field, we're in the middle of something. I think we can do a lot more to serve Europeans even better. But that would be my first choice. Okay. So I wonder if that's going to come back to bite her, um, if her chances continue to rise. And just right now, her prime minister is backing her up. I mean, actually, the past uh, four or five days, uh, all of a well, sudden. Let's hope he has a job uh, next week because there's an election <laughs> on Wednesday and exactly. Denmark isn't there. <laughs> mm, yeah, well, obviously, that will have a major impact, I think. A major role to play is just... And we, we aren't certain about all of the other governments, for example, what happened in Austria as well. So there are some moving pieces that might take a little bit longer to negotiate this than we might like. I mean, the idea of having someone in place by the end of June is very interesting when we've never had this kind of configuration before. Also, the deep division that you have in the council. So, I mean, that is, it's being played out all over the place. It's not just in the parliament, it's also in the council. So, And it's that, like guerrilla war there. Macron can maybe win by not losing. He can just refuse and refuse. <laughs> maybe he'll eventually get his way. But Merkel will be this rock and he has to try and sort of like jump over the rock or jump around the rock or something. I don't know what the metaphor is. Mm. Now, here's another quiz that I wanted to run. I want you guys to guess how many new MEPs there will be in this parliament out of 751. I'm going to cheat, Ryan. I just read your tweet. <laughs> <laughs> On my way here. She's not bringing another <laughs> bottle of champagne to the table. No, this time I went How many do you think, Lena? 90, no? Or should I, did oh I God. read it wrong? <laughs> Lena, you failed maths, didn't 400, you? 400, <laughs> no? That's not the new, not the re-elected or the new... The, the totally new, new MEPs. Like, How many out of 750? Like they've, they've never been in, in yes. before. How many I, I think I read correctly your tweet was 90. No. 144. How many do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Stop trying to cheat and just tell me how many you think. I Oof, that's a very difficult question. I was never good in math. No, I would not Last guess. time it was about a 50% turnover. Oh, well, I think now 60. 60 out of 751. 6%. Or 60%. Yeah. Okay, all right. Okay, so that's something. <laughs> now you're going to get my maths wrong. <laughs> I think that that is about 440. So I'm going to say 440. How many do you reckon? Like 360. Okay. Um, I am going to tell you what I know, and then I'm going to make my own guess. So... We have figured out about 600 of the names of the new MEPs. 399 are completely new. 20 are making a comeback, so they were once an MEP, stopped being an MEP, and now they're going to come back and be an MEP. And then only about 180 are previous MEPs returning. So obviously that leaves 150 that we don't know. Mm. The numbers could mm. go up in either direction. Um, but I'm going to predict 450 new MEPs. So what Oof. are we still waiting for the news on? 150? Well... Sometimes the election authorities don't put the information in a very obvious format. Mm -hmm. uh, some countries like Ireland haven't finished counting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm actually so embarrassed about that. <sighs> I, I mean, back how home. are they still going? <laughs> yeah. It's just ridiculous. They and then there are other instances where we don't have a Slovenian, for example. So trying to read a Slovenian spreadsheet and saying, you know, with confidence what the answer is, is not always a simple task. I can send them on to you. Really? Yeah. You've got a Slovenian. Yeah. So, like, your Polish plumber. And you can well, I mean, we just have a consultancy that does it. 
Oh, well, it's, it's lucky to be the very posh save the children, isn't it? <laughs> we at Politico <laughs> struggle in our spare time to create yeah, these well, spreadsheets. I'm sure lots of other people listening have the same thing, but yeah. Okay, if, if you wish to be a free consultant and to comply with Politico's ethical guidelines, you're very welcome to donate your time to fill in the spreadsheet. <laughs> do you um, have any Slovenians on the staff? We do not. Oh. We have people from about 21 of the 28 emails. It's so. about time to hire somebody from Slovenia then. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Gaspar, come back. We need you. <laughs> we did have two Slovenians. This is just unraveling now, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thank you so much for listening. You have been very patient to get through our unraveling podcast panel. If you haven't already joined our unraveling community, please go to politico.eu forward slash registration and we'll email you the podcast. We've got to get a drink. It's really sweating in it's here, hot. isn't it? Yeah. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.